Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you all. I had a bit of a scare there. I turned my mic pack on as I was about to come up front, and it didn't turn on, so during the prayer, I had to run out and get new batteries in it, but it's working now, so thank God for that. Um, it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, today, kind of in between our series on Joshua and a short series that Pastor Josh will start on forgiveness this, coming, uh, this next Sunday. And we spend our week away from both studies in Hebrews 4. As we gather this morning, um, it is somewhat incredible to me, and I know this is somewhat cliche, but it's incredible that July is almost done, somewhat surprising to many of us. And with the close of July, of course, comes the close of summer as well. That reality might cause some groans uh, from within the bodies of our younger people with us today, as you're not super excited to get back to school. Um, the adults sitting next to those young ones might be a little less than disappointed that summer's coming to an end, as it means maybe a little bit more peace and quiet at home. Um, but for all of us, really, I think the end of summer brings with it always at least a slight letdown, doesn't it? Um, for as one person mentioned to me last week at Cape Splash, and I won't name them, um, but as they said, summer is, is a bit of a lie every year, for it always presents itself as this glorious time of the year. And certainly, if you can remember back to the days of your childhood, you, you can envision just how highly uh, anticipated the summer months were. For as a kid, summer represents, supposedly, just absolute freedom and fun and celebration. And you keep talking about the plans that you have for the summer, and you look forward to getting out of school on that last day of class. And then summer comes, and well, I mean, there's some excitement to it. There's also a lot of boredom as a kid. For the most part, a lot of sitting around the house asking your parents what's the next thing we get to do and being disappointed to find out that next thing's not for another week or two weeks or three weeks. So by the end, as a kid, you're at times perhaps even looking forward to getting back to a normal routine. As adults, we can be equally disappointed in the summer months for even if we might not celebrate being out of school, we typically have at least some plans in store. We think of those vacations we can go on with our family, and we think about leaving work for a few days and, and getting a bit of a break, getting a bit rest. But of course, that too comes to an end. And regardless of your age, regardless of your season in life, summer, as it comes to an end, proves to never quite be quite as restful as you hoped it would be, not nearly as much fun as you hoped it would be, and as it turns out, just another part of the year that's just hotter than the rest of the year, and that's pretty much the only thing that's consistent. As a result, these months that are supposedly months for rest turn out to be an awful lot like the rest of life. We long for rest, we long and anticipate some greater day, but that day comes and it is quickly past. And as a result of all these things, this concept of rest, this idea of getting a break, remains something that we desire to experience. We know we want it, but we never can quite grasp onto it. And so as much as we talk about getting away and we discuss getting well-rested and even as we come to Scripture and read of this topic, it can remain one of those concepts that is impossible for us really to grasp, impossible for us to define, and can seem as if it is just the stuff of fairy tales. And yet as we examine Hebrews 4 today, what I want us to see, what I hope we can acknowledge, is that rest is far from a fairy tale. And it's not even all that distant from us. It is impossibly beautiful, impossibly wonderful. But in order to experience, in order to make sure we really are entering into that rest and, and appreciate it, 
Hebrews 4 walks us through this process of, of really taking great caution to ensure we're not misidentifying rest or seeking rest elsewhere, lest we miss out on real rest. It calls us to take a step back from work and our everyday mundane lives to savor just the grandeur of the promise. And ultimately, it reminds us of what it looks like to then persevere to the end. It's my hope as we look at this today then that we can see once again why we do what we do and why our desire for rest is not foolish. It is that which we are designed to experience. With that being said, let me pray once more and we'll dig into this first call to take action or take caution in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let me begin by prayer again. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to read from Hebrews, God. There's so much in our text today, God, and, and so we pray for focus. We pray for an ability to understand what is before us. Holy Spirit, be at work in the hearts of your people so that we can see clearly the argument being made in this passage. Might we, in response to this passage, Put it into practice. Might we take great caution every day as believers? God, might we be careful lest we fall short of the call? And God, as we strive to persevere, Lord, might we do so with a proper appreciation of what it is that you offer to us, God? Might that never lose its beauty in our eyes, God? But might that future end, that glorious rest that you promise us, become increasingly beautiful with each passing day? As always, I pray for those here who do not know you, God, who have not yet even come close to entering your rest, God. Save them from their sin today. We love you so much and we praise you. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin our text, let's begin by reading Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 3, where we see this call to take caution. There we read, Therefore, let us fear if, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. As our text begins, it's important to take note that we really find ourselves in the middle of a discussion, that that really covers all of Hebrews 3 and nearly all of chapter 4 as well. And in this discussion, much like throughout much of Hebrews, the author's desire is to awaken a sort of holy fear in his readers. You see that in these opening words. Therefore, let us fear. Let us understand that there is something very much at, at risk here. The stakes could not possibly be higher. This call for fear this call to take this seriously, was vitally important in the mind of the author of Hebrews, for he's writing to a group of people who it seems are, are toying with the idea of, of turning away from Christ. People who have perhaps made a profession of faith, and yet in the midst of growing persecution, in the midst of growing difficulties in this fallen world, they begun to long for those days they thought were a slight, slightly better slightly more beautiful and restful option. And so they are calling back, it seems, to more Jewish roots. Time and time again throughout this entire letter, the author is telling them that's, that's not an option. You can't go back and still be in God's good grace. You can't give up Christ and still benefit from his work. As he begins to call them to this reality again, as he calls them to fear and appreciate this, he reminds them why that is so foolish, and he does so, in this case, in Hebrews 4, with a reminder of how those Israelites of old, 
themselves also fell short. How they too had the opportunity of something great, yet they never could quite grasp it. Specifically in this case, they could never grasp the rest they desired. He refers to that previous generation in verse 2 where he speaks and says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they did also, but the word that they heard did not profit them. At the end of the text there in verse 3, he quotes Psalm 95 and says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The failure that Hebrews points to is a failure that was very familiar with these readers of Hebrews and is probably familiar to many of us in here. It was the failure of Israelites wandering in the wilderness. As you may recall, for those of you who have read through the book of Exodus, those individuals had at one point in time a great message preached to them. As he said, a word of good news. To those original Israelites, what was that good news? It was deliverance, right? They were enslaved in Egypt under a strict, horrific oppression of godless rulers. They cry out to Yahweh for him to fulfill his promises made long before then, and God responds. And God calls out to them and says, I have heard your prayers, and I will indeed rescue you. And you have this glorious news proclaimed. News not just of escape from Egypt, but news of a distant promised land. A land, God said, would be flowing with milk and honey. A land of peace, a land of rest. And to a people suffering for hundreds of years under oppression as slaves, you can only imagine how, how sweet that concept of rest must have tasted. How beautiful that promise of deliverance must have appeared. And in the early days of the promise, it certainly would have looked as if everything was coming to fruition. It certainly would have appeared as if they were well on their way to experiencing that long-awaited, long-desired end goal. Yet the end of their lives, of course, was far from restful. For quoting Psalm 95 here in Hebrews 4, the author says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The more complete version of that psalm is found back in Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 7 through 11, detailing that same failure, we read these words, again quoted from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as when they provoked me, as in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And said, they will always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The psalmist here is remembering those days of rebellion in the wilderness. Those days in which the Israelites, having heard that word of promise, having seen glorious works of power by God in the plagues of Egypt, still chose to rebel. They questioned Moses, they questioned Yahweh, they assumed that this actually was, was not good news, this was bad news to be delivered from Egypt. And in response to the rebellion, in response to their failure, God says, you're not going to make it. You who heard this promise, you who made it to the wilderness, will now die in the wilderness. Even the generations following them, those generations that eventually made into the wilderness and conquered, or made it through the wilderness and even conquered the promised land as we discussed in Joshua, even they didn't fully experience it, did they? For the land was continually lost and regained and lost and regained, and the question, of course, is why? Why did they fail to enter rest? Why did the promise never come to full fruition for those Israelites? Well, the reason for this is exactly what Hebrews says in verse 2. 
the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In other words, these Hebrew people were really Hebrew only by by ethnicity, but their spiritual status was not changed there. For while they heard this word of promise, and while some of them, namely men like Joshua and Caleb, while they believed, the masses rejected it. And so the word just became this pipe dream, this false promise in the minds of so many, and instead of believing it, instead of following God in obedience, they rejected it, and as a result, they experienced restlessness, and more specifically, they they experience death. It's a tragic story. Truly tragic. To see all of these great things God did for his people and to see how they they still rejected it. As we read passages like that from the Old Testament, it is, of course, easy to to take a step back and think, oh, how, how foolish. How crazy that they would see the plagues on Egypt and still question God's goodness. How foolish they would see God provide manna and still routinely question God's willingness and ability to provide And indeed, while that was foolish of them, while it was from a spiritual sense shocking, the point Hebrews is making here is that story is not entirely different from our own. For as he reminds them of those ancient peoples, he is attempting to tell these Hebrew people that that you too are right there with them. For again, read verse 2. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they did also. In other words, you're not that different from those ancient Israelites, readers. For you too have had good news preached to you. Of course, our good news is not news of escape from Egypt. Our good news is is the gospel, which itself is news of deliverance. Not from Egypt's kingdom, but from the kingdom of darkness. We are brought out of death into life, from darkness to light, Time and time again, the New New Testament uses this Old Testament imagery to paint our own journey, to describe our own calling. Here in Hebrews, you see other passages as well that draw from that rich Exodus story. And so if you just look back, say, to Hebrews chapter 2, at the very end, he speaks of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Again, Old Testament language, he comes back to that same language at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And this language is not rooted only in Hebrews, but it's found throughout the New Testament. And so you think of the way Jesus is proclaimed upon his entrance. As Jesus enters into this ministry, what is he declared to be in John 1, 29? Well, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the Passover Lamb, the Lamb from the story of the Exodus. The sacrifice that separates the people out, that marks the people of God from the world. You read elsewhere in passages like 1 Peter. And 1 Peter throughout, the the author uses similar language in passages like 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so on and so forth it goes. You read the Apostle Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 10, and and the Apostle Paul describes Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And as he does so, he says, these things happen to them as an example for us. All of this is for our application. All of this is for us to see we, we could very much be in a similar state. It's vitally important to remember, of course, because oftentimes when we read stories like the Exodus, 
Or even books like Joshua, we can turn them into studies of, of how to be a good leader or, or how to be a better Christian. And those things are all fine, but the ultimate point isn't how to be a better fill-in-the-blank. It's here's what faithfulness looks like. And here's why faithfulness is so vitally important. Here's your calling, and here is God. And here's what it looks like to obey. The author of Hebrews tells us, as he told this original audience, that's what you need to understand. In the midst of getting caught up in all this language, in the midst of attending church and singing songs and claiming the name of Christ, let us make sure that we're actually in Christ. Let us make sure that we have actually united that message of the gospel to our own personal faith, our own devotion to Christ. Because if we fail to do that, if we fail to enter by that narrow gate, then the end will be equally restless, equally disappointing, equally damning. And so as the author speaks to his audience and speaks to us, he begins with this very significant, very weighty warning to make sure that in the midst of our struggles, we're not forgetting that basic foundation, that foundation that teaches us that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So let's make sure that we actually really do believe, and that we're striving to hold on to that faith, to that belief. It's a weighty comment, no doubt. And if we were just to stop here, this text would feel entirely convicting and not all that encouraging. But thanks be to God for the fact that that encouragement is ultimately the tone of Hebrews 4, for having told us to take caution, as we move into verses 3 through 10, we see a much more encouraging note in which we're told next to really savor this promise, by which I just mean appreciate the beauty of what this rest represents, both in terms of its grandeur as well as in terms of its open offer to us. Let's begin by looking at this grandeur of the promise, verses 3 through 6. There we read, We who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, saying, Today, saying through David, after such long a time as has been before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And we'll stop there. Our first focus here is really in those first few verses, three through five, in which we see the rest offered more clearly defined. And as he defines it, he uses language that I think is, is probably somewhat surprising to, to many people. For oftentimes, when we think of the rest that God promises us, we imagine something far too simplistic, far too cheap. It certainly was a problem with the ancient Israelites. When you read through that story of ancient Israel again, one of the many problems they had was, was equating their rest with the land. That is to say, they assumed their greatest need was the land, was the nation, was, was a political kingdom. That's what they wanted. They wanted to make a name for themselves so that they could have rest from their physical enemies. As a result of that, of course, we see what happens once they came into the land in Joshua and Judges. As soon as they set foot in the land, they forgot that the rest was not in the land, but in the God of the land, the God who gave it to them. 
And so as a result of placing all their hope in materialistic blessings, as a result of defining their rest entirely in terms of stuff, they lost it all. Yet again, as foolish as that is, we too can be guilty of oversimplifying what it means when we think of the idea of rest. What it means when we think of what what it looks like to live the blessing of God. For we too still equate so much rest with, with material comfort. So often we assume that, that I would be at rest, I would be content if I just had fill in the blank. And that, that blank can be filled in with any number of things for, for you all in here. Maybe for you it's, it's the ability to pay off those lingering bills, that, that debt you just can't get rid of. It could be uh, issues of of illness, of physical struggles. It could be a bigger house, better stuff in the house. You can fill that blank with a number of relationships. And so if only my children are more obedient, if only my spouse was more uh, loving, more caring, if only my job was better, if only my hometown was better, whatever it is, we fill in the blanks with all these things and we assume that that those things, those things are what we will find rest in. You see this false vision come to light when you think of how people so oftentimes envision heaven. And so oftentimes heaven is reduced to just a place where I get all the stuff I've always wanted. But that's, that's the dream of a child. And that falls so far short from the type of rest the author of Hebrews is discussing here. For it's the rest of man. It's the rest of the world. But in Hebrews, look again And see what type of rest is being offered to us. For it's not the rest of the world. It's the rest of God. Again, verse 3. We who have believed enter the rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again to this passage, they shall not enter my rest. The rest that the author of Hebrews is pointing us towards is not the rest of of some feeble, weak-minded person. It's the rest of God. And it's so difficult to understand that concept. To understand it, of course, we, we need not just to understand the story of the Exodus, but we have to turn back even further to a story that is even more central to human history, for it's the story of creation itself. For this is the rest that Hebrews is quoting. And so if you consider these words in Genesis chapter 2, at the very end of the story of creation, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. It is hard for us to fully understand what it means when we read that God rested. For he's still holding everything together. Yet from this text, and as you consider other passages like it, you see in this Genesis passage, in this concept of divine rest, the state of, of divine satisfaction, of, of completion, of perfection, for having spoken everything into existence. God is able to step back, examine his work, 
and see that it is exactly what it was supposed to be. And as such, God, as the divine creator, is fully satisfied in his work. And so he rests in this perfect communion shared between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He rests from this perfect effort. And having rested, God then invites his people to join with him in that rest. God invites his fallen people to enter into that seventh day Sabbath. So when we read of rest in Hebrews, it is vitally important that you do not envision laying down and taking a nap but rather that you envision entering into the presence of the almighty, perfectly joyful, perfectly satisfied creator of the universe. That's rest, believer. That's paradise. And that's the existence you were designed to enjoy. For it is only there in the perfect satisfaction of the creator that you, his creation, are also perfectly satisfied. Yet again, words fail us to try to describe the type of beauty that that Hebrews is pointing us towards. There are numerous other texts that, that can help us, including works of fiction. One of my favorites that depicts this future paradise comes from John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, that tremendous story of Christian's journey from the world of destruction through the wilderness and ultimately to the celestial city. And towards the very end of that tale, we read of this depiction that comes in the form of a conversation that the pilgrim, Christian, is having with the shining ones, with these angelic messengers. And speaking of the future glory and rest he's about to enter into, these shining ones say this, You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life, and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. When you come there, you shall have white robes given to you. Your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not again see such things as you saw when you were in the lower regions upon the earth, sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things have passed away. The men asked, what must we do to enter into this holy place? And it was answered, well, you must there receive your comforts of your toil. Have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers, tears, and suffering for the king by the way. It is there, they said, that your eyes shall be delighted with seeing, your ears, and he- with your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again, the ones that have gone thither before you. There you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows you into that holy place after you. That is the end of the believer. That is rest. And it is perfect, not just because it is rest from your job that you do not care for, it is rest from the toil of this life. And it is rest in which you, alongside the creator, are able to take a step back and be fully satisfied with what has been accomplished. The rest defined by scripture is rest because it is in the kingdom and is because it is in the direct presence of the king. That is the rest that we are promised. And when you understand that, when you savor just how sweet and how grand of an image this is, you can no doubt quickly understand how cheap people have made this future. 
For even unbelievers throw around words like rest in peace when someone dies. And sadly, as believers, we've handed this phrase over as if it's appropriate. But the unbeliever is picturing something, again, pathetic compared to that of Scripture. They're envisioning some future in which a person is just drifting into the void of nothingness. No, that's not peace. Peace is being in the presence of the king who loves us. Peace is eternal satisfaction. Peace is eternal joy. And peace can only be experienced by God's people with God in the afterlife. And so if we are to take seriously the promise given to us, we must appreciate just how big of a deal it is. We must appreciate just how beautiful this rest is said to be. Furthermore, we must also appreciate the fact that this promise is open to anyone who would receive it. Look with me again at verse 6 through 10, and we read this next point. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This element of the promise seems, yet again, almost too good to be true. For one would assume that regardless of how good of a king God is, that there would be a limitation to this promise. That surely he would just open up for those ancient Israelites, and once they fail, well, he would shut things down. Yet as the author of Hebrews mentions, well, well, Joshua didn't fully succeed, you could argue in that. For as Joshua had succeeded, then the promise would have been shut down. If Joshua had fully succeeded, then the Israelites would have gained the land, they would have controlled the land, and they would have lived in peace and rest and security. But of course, if you read through Judges, you see that did not happen. For as faithful as Joshua was, he was still just a fallen man. And as great as that, that foretaste of peace was in the promised land, it was brief. Yet, despite that failure, the psalmist in Psalm 95 is able to repeat this phrase, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Just as the author first highlighted the word, my rest, here he highlights the word, today. The significance of that word comes from the fact that that it was penned not in the days of Joshua, but in the days of David, some 500 years after Joshua. So the promise is open to Joshua, they failed. The promise is open to David 500 years later, they failed. And yet generation after generation after generation reads the same psalm. Generation after generation after generation of Jews practiced the same law. They had the same Sabbath as part of their weekly routine in which they were told constantly, remember God, rest in God, look to God. And generation after generation after generation failed. And then you come to the New Testament. And you come to a figure like Jesus Christ. Not like Jesus Christ, you come to Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who is declared, perhaps strangely to our New Testament ears in Luke 6, the Lord of the Sabbath. It is Jesus who does not say, practice the Sabbath and find rest, but it is Jesus who says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so we see Jesus take that Old Testament imagery, take this grand promise of rest and place it not in some ancient land, 
not in some weekly practice, but in himself, in his person, in his work, of course, ultimately, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of his success, because of what he says, that that offer of today remains open. And so we savor the promise by seeing the fact that, that the promise is still made open to us regardless of your past, regardless of how significantly you failed yesterday or even this morning. The author of Psalm says, do not miss this chance. You can still be at rest. You can still enter into the presence of God in complete and eternal satisfaction. You must simply unite that to faith. You must simply believe And if you just believe, if you just take that one childlike step, you, child of God, are given this eternal hope, are guaranteed that regardless of how toilsome this life might be, that the end is clear and that the glory is beautiful. Just believe. For as long as today is called today, you have an opportunity. Therein, of course, lies an additional warning. For today is not eternal. The day of judgment will come. And so the clock is ticking, unbeliever. So believe now. Rest now and rest then. For those of us who have already taken hold of this promise... It is vitally important that we take a step back and really savor it, see it in all of its beauty and all of its glory. For it is only when we feel the weight of that, it's only when we see the beauty of that rest that we can then move forward with great encouragement, with great vigor, and fulfill this final calling in our text to persevere until the end. Look with me, if you will, at verses 10 through 12. Or actually, 11 through 12. There we read, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Just as the author began this text in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1, he ends it with this call to be diligent. Therefore, in light of the warning, in light of the beauty of that rest, be diligent to ensure that you are persevering. And if you read throughout the entirety of the letter of Hebrews, you see a number of examples of what this perseverance looks like. For the sake of our time this morning, however, I just want to highlight two elements of this perseverance as they are seen here in Hebrews 4. The first element is the fact that we are to persevere as a corporate body. Look with me again at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. This is far from the only time he speaks to his audience in this corporate manner. If you read earlier in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Again, that is, therefore, brothers do this. You jump ahead towards the very end or towards the end of the book in passages like Hebrews 10, 
Verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us continue to pursue this fact. Time and time again, the author of Hebrews speaks not just to separate individuals reading this letter. He speaks to this corporate body of professing believers. For he is concerned not just with the individual, but with the entire church, with the entire body. And in this calling, we see this very important reminder of the fact that we are not on this journey alone. That while you, yes, must respond in personal faith, you do not do so as some autonomous creature that then walks this journey in solitude. No, you are united into a body, here specifically, to Gate Bible Chapel. And it is your calling, then, to go on your journey alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. You do so both for your own benefit, because you are sharpened, you are encouraged, you are held accountable when you fall into sin, and you do also for, for the benefit of the others. For when you see a fellow member struggling, when you see a marriage struggling, you don't just say, oh, did you hear what's happened to so-and-so? No, you reach out to that person. You drag them back. You speak of great concern of their faith and say, brother, I don't want you to miss this rest. You need to not miss the grace that is offered to you. And so you go throughout your life corporately, pulling other people back in and willingly allowing yourself to be pulled back in by them as well. In our own culture, this call to corporate obedience, I think, is so important to hit on constantly because we live in a culture that is obsessed with individuality. And so oftentimes we speak of our faith as my own personal walk with Jesus and my own personal quiet time with Jesus. And those things are good and fine. But brothers and sisters, we are a family. Let us act like a family and hold each other accountable and love each other and serve with one another. Lest any one of us fall short. Lest we make it into the kingdom and are shocked to find out, oh, wow, they, they didn't make it. Now we pull each other along corporately. That is an element of our perseverance. Secondly, regarding this perseverance, we see that it's to be done in the Word, in the Bible. Again, verses 12 through 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all these things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So oftentimes I think you, you might hear language of Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. And it's used only as a reminder of kind of the doctrine of scripture. That is to say that the word of God is alive, it's inspired by God. You think of language like 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. The application and use of scripture. And that element is true. It is essential to understand that the word of God is indeed the word of God. It's inspired by God. And as such, it is forever accurate. It is forever relevant. Its standards do not change when our culture changes. And so we cannot say, well, Paul might say that, but it's 2023. Get with the times. No, we always go back to the word. For it is alive. The author of Hebrews has already demonstrated exactly what that looks like, hasn't he? For if you recall his use of, of passages like Psalm 95, you see how this interpretation is used in Psalm 95. 
For when he reads, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, the author of Hebrews doesn't say, that's a nice thought, David. I wonder what that meant for David. Well, that's part of it. He also says, okay, what does that mean for us now? How is that applied to us now? How is there grace? How is there warning in this for us today? The author of Hebrews did this because he understood the word of God is is alive. It's here to direct us, to actively judge us, to discern our thoughts. And that's exactly what he then says about the word in verse 12. For he also describes it as as sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is not just good for, to guide us in application. The word of God is good in the sense that it, it reveals our thoughts. It reveals our motivations. It cuts us down to our very core so that we are exposed to the God of creation, the one who will judge us, the one to whom we have due. It's the language of judgment. There is, again, in this word, a word of warning, isn't there? For it's a reminder that you can't fool God. You can grow up in church and fool your parents and fool your pastors and elders and fool community leaders into thinking you're this great godly soul, but you can't, you can't fool the one that sees your heart. And so regardless of all the good things you do and all the people you fool on the way, when it comes to the day of judgment, God will see you for who you truly are. And if you are not his, you will be rightly damned. There is a great word of warning in that then. To not be deceived and not think you can deceive God. But yet again, I think there's a great word of encouragement to us as well. And a word that speaks to the reason why we gather as a corporate body as we do. For as we gather together, what do we devote so much of our time to? The word. We preach the word. We teach the word. We quote the word. Why? Because as we do that, we are all corporately being exposed. We're all being reminded week in and week out, this is what God wants of us. We are week in and week out then reminded, here is what our life is to look like. We are week in and week out then brought back to the same place we saw in Joshua. For when God calls Joshua, what does, he says, what does he say will be the key to Joshua's success? Is it brilliant strategy on Joshua's part? Is it charisma when it comes to his personality? No. What's the key to his success? The key is, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. If you follow this law, you will experience my rest. You will experience success. And ultimately, we see the same promise being made. God does not hide his will from you and me. God does not call us to figure out some secret riddles, to find a, the, the joy of life, to figure out what the will of God is for you. No, the will of God is for you to be obedient to the word of God. And so we read the word corporately. We hear it proclaimed both in forms of song as well as in preaching. And as we do so, we pray that God might expose us. And as we are exposed, we pray that our brothers and sisters might then come together and draw us back to God. And it is ultimately that end point of being drawn to God that we see really the conclusion of the book of Hebrews, of his ongoing arguments. For as we are laid bare, we are then driven back to the one who saves us. While we're not spending time there, you read the end of chapter 4. And you read that once again we are driven back not to the law, not to our own personal righteousness, but we're, we're pulled back to Christ. 
For just as the word lays us bare, the word reminds us where our source of life is, where our source of hope is, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we go back to Christ because, again, he is our high priest. We go back to Christ because he's our Passover lamb. We go back to Christ because Christ alone is our entrance into heavenly rest. And so day in and day out, we remind ourselves of what's at stake. Day in and day out, when we we feel overwhelmed by the restlessness and the toil of this world, we choose not to disassociate ourselves from fellow believers, we choose not to disconnect from the body, but we choose to dig in more deeply. As we do so, we are reminded daily of the beauty of the rest, we're reminded daily of the call of perseverance, and we're reminded daily of where our hope ultimately lies. And so as we close today, unbeliever, please again hear me when I say the offer of rest is given to you. Unbeliever, I pray you feel just wrecked by this life. I pray you feel the restlessness that comes as a result of life in a fallen world. I pray that you feel the weight of that toil that comes living in this dark place. But I pray that as you feel that toiled nature, as you, as you feel that pain, as you feel that fatigue, that you do not become so overwhelmed that you lose all hope, but that you see that there's still an offer for rest. And so, unbeliever, hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You too will be given rest. If you have any questions of that, I'm happy to stay out in the lobby and talk to you afterwards. Find an elder, find someone to speak to about that offer. But do not let today end without taking advantage of it. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us hear these words of Hebrews and take seriously the call to examine ourselves. Make sure that we really have put our faith in Christ, that we're united with the body. And as we do so this week, let us take the time to meditate on that future glory. Meditate on that rest. Taste the sweetness of the promise of Christ. And as you wait to to experience that fulfillment, let us strive daily to persevere. Let us help one another persevere in that calling. And let us do our best to fulfill the task set before us so that someday we too can see our master, our savior Jesus Christ, and hear those beautiful words, well done my good and faithful servant. Now come and enjoy the rest that is for you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the promise that is given to us. It is infinitely greater than anything we could ever deserve. For God, we deserve nothing but wrath. We deserve nothing but an eternal state of restlessness. And yet, God, in your goodness, you invite us to join you. Your kindness is is overwhelming, God. Your goodness is incredible, God. And we praise you for that. Might these words never become cliche in our minds. May they never become some children's church story to us and nothing else. But might this be our greatest satisfaction day in and day out as we look ahead to that future day of glory. As always, I pray for unbelievers who are here, God. Save them from their sin. Bring them into your heavenly rest. For the rest of us, God, cause us to see this calling daily as a motivation to persevere. And we pray, God, that someday soon and very soon you will call us home. And in that day, Lord, we will finally be joined with you. We will see you as our king. 
and we will be forever satisfied, forever at rest. It is to that and we pray all these things to your glory. Amen.